You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. When I started this podcast about five, six years ago, the first thing my then-teenage son asked was, Dad, who is the greatest explorer ever? Without really even thinking, I replied, Richard Francis Burton. Now, before we get too excited about that lofty answer, I should clarify, I don't really think Burton is the greatest explorer ever, but I will say he was probably my favorite explorer. There is no one like Burton, an English army officer who lived smack dab in the heart of the Victorian era of England, in the mid to late 1800s. And I'll just tell you a few details about the man to give you a flavor of what we are going to talk about in this series. Burton was an explorer, writer, scholar, soldier, diplomat, ethnologist, linguist, poet, fencer, and perhaps a spy. He spoke 29 languages, many fluently. He was one of the first Europeans to visit the holy city of Mecca, which he did in disguise. He explored extensively in Africa, including the Great Lakes District. He is acknowledged as the first Westerner to reach Lake Tanganyika, the second largest freshwater lake in the world. And then there is his work as a writer. He wrote and translated more than 200 articles, books, and literary works over the course of his life. This included some controversial items, including the Kama Sutra and the Arabian Nights. And we can't forget about the drinking and drug use, plus a healthy obsession with sex and erotica. As you can see, this is going to be fun. Now, I want to point out that Burton, while immensely talented and accomplished, is wildly frustrating. He is the smartest guy in the room, and he knows it. Yet he can't constrain his own biting sarcasm and pointed criticism of others, including his bosses, such as the British government. He is not afraid to alienate others and screw things up for himself, just to prove a point. And because he is so prolific a writer, and so opinionated, he will say a lot of stupid things. He will spare no race, no religion, no nationality, no person. He is often a first-rate jerk, and he will make a lot of enemies, some undeservedly, many very justified. To give you a taste of what people thought about Burton, his friends gave him the nickname Ruffian Dick. And to think that if his friends gave Burton that nickname, imagine what his enemies will have to say about him. No matter, he is one of the boldest and most curious individuals we have ever covered on this show. He has an insatiable thirst for knowledge that is rivaled by no one. Thus, it makes him immensely fascinating and entertaining, and it is why I like the guy so much. Anyhow, I want to note that this series on Burton is going to mostly delve into the man's life as an explorer and adventurer. His entire life is wildly interesting, but lots of it is not that relevant to what we do on this podcast. 
Still, know that I will talk quite a bit about Burton's life and interests and activities because they are so important to his character. So, a few notes about today's episode before we get going. First, a reminder that you can go to explorespodcast.com if you want to see photos of Ruffy and Dick, as well as maps of his adventures. Second, I want to note that Burton is today often called Richard Francis Burton, so as not to confuse him with the famous Welsh actor Richard Burton. In his life, the Francis was rarely used. Third, there is a ton of information about Burton available, and to be honest, a lot of it is conflicting. That's not uncommon on this show. Just know that I'll try and point out important differences between the sources. Otherwise, it will not be shocking for you to find something different about Burton than what I have stated in our series. That is just part of the way things happen. Fourth, Burton would become very enamored with the cultures and religions of Asia and the Middle East, including Islam. This will be very important to him and our story, and I'll explain those points as we go. But know that my knowledge of Islam is limited. I will try and explain how it fits into Burton's life and our story, but forgive me if I get anything wrong. And fifth, I want to let you know that there is a website called bertoniana.org, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, that has a ton of documents of Burton's, plus a link to tons more. It is a great site if you want to really dive into the crazy world of Richard Francis Burton. And who doesn't want to read a manual on bayonet exercises, which you can find on the site. I have put a link to it on the Explorer's website, as well as in the show notes of the podcast. That's bertoniana.org, B-U-R-T-O-N-I-A-N-A dot org. So there you go, a bunch of notes to start. Let's get going. Richard Francis Burton was born on March 19, 1821, in Torquay, Devon, England. His father was Joseph Netterville Burton, whose family was of English stock, but raised in Ireland. Joseph Burton would rise to the rank of lieutenant colonel in the British Army. However, his career would be scuttled on a point of honor and court politics. This happened when King George IV of England went about trying to divorce his wife, Caroline of Brunswick. He didn't want her to be the queen. Well, Caroline, who was popular with the common people as well as the rank and file of the army, was accused of adultery by the king while in Genoa, where Lieutenant Colonel Burton was stationed. Joseph Burton would be called as a witness at the queen's trial, but he refused to testify against her. As a result, he was personally dismissed from his post and put on half pay by the Duke of Wellington himself. His career in the army was over. As a side note, Carolyn was technically queen for 18 months, but was in exile much of the time and was refused access to the court when she did come to London. She would fall ill in July of 1821 and die three weeks later, cancer the likely reason for her demise, although some have suggested poisoning. Anyhow, Joseph Burton would, at this time, marry Martha Baker, who came from a wealthy family. She was said to have been the descendant of an illegitimate son of King Louis XIV of France. Richard Francis would be born in 1821. A daughter, Maria, and then another son, Edward, would follow in 1823 and 1824, respectively. The family would move to France when Richard was just a few months old, living off Martha's allowance and Joseph's small army pay. One reason for the move was the health of Joseph. He suffered from asthma, and the French weather was much better for him than the cold and wet of England. Richard Burton would spend the first ten years of his life in France. He and his siblings would prove to be something of a wild pack. They loved to fight and play games. Richard embraced any sort of a challenge and was always trying to prove himself. And while rambunctious and undisciplined, he was also sensitive about people and animals being mistreated. The family would move back to England when Richard was 10, mainly due to political uncertainties in France, where it was not quite safe for a British family. Richard and his siblings hated Britain. They hated the bad food, the cold, and the gray. 
The English seemed like barbarians to the Burton children. In fact, this is a feeling Richard would maintain all of his life, later saying, quote, England is the only country where I never feel at home, end quote. Richard spent a lot of the next year fighting. He never backed down from a challenge and offered them whenever he felt slighted, which was often. After a year, the family would head back to France, moving to someplace new every year or two. This included Tours, Orléans, and Blois. The Burtons hired private tutors for their children, but these teachers struggled due to the unruly nature of Richard and his siblings. Young Richard, in particular, was proving to be quite the hellion. However, he showed skill in fencing, something he learned from an old soldier. And then there was his talent with languages. From an early age, he had an obvious gift. He spoke fluent French and English, and would soon add Italian as the family moved to Pisa in 1832. By the way, these cities all had small colonies of English people, and the Burtons would congregate with them. However, as the children grew older, they often found themselves becoming more enmeshed with the locals. The family would live all over Italy, including Rome, Naples, Sorrento, Florence, and Capua, the children getting a continental education and life in the process. Richard, as he grew into a teenager, became increasingly reckless. In 1836, when cholera broke out in Naples, he and his brother snuck out of the house and did the rounds with the carts collecting the dead. And then there were girls, and smoking, and eventually drinking, and even opium. Richard Burton had grown into a tall, broad-shouldered young man. He had jet black hair and long lashes, the latter often commented upon by people. He was confident and bold and could command a room. He found that he liked girls, and they liked him back. Burton's father grew concerned when, on a trip into town with his son, he found a startling number of local girls who knew and called out to Richard. And then, much to the horror of their parents, Richard and his brother would get to know the local prostitutes. Well, that meant another move, this time back to Pisa, where Richard would fall in love with the local girl. He would propose, and she would accept. The families, of course, were appalled, and the whole thing was quashed. The family would then move yet again to Marseille and then Pau, both in France but the boys were becoming too much for their parents. It was girls and drinking and smoking, and who knows what else. It was time to get them onto careers as adults. That would mean another move back to England in 1840, where the boys would attend university. It was decided that the brothers were bad influences on each other, so they would go to separate schools. Richard would thus be sent to Trinity College, Oxford, in the fall of 1840. A formal education system was the last thing that Richard Francis Burton wanted. Yes, he was wickedly smart. He spoke numerous languages, but he was 19 years old and full of them and the devil. He resented others telling him what to think and do, especially when he thought them to be inferior. Things would not go well from the start. Burton had grown a big mustache by this time, and it brought some snide comments from his fellow classmates. Well, Burton was quick to challenge anyone who even looked at him sideways, and this would mean a lot of fistfights. One story said that he was warned early on that the older students would try to enter the rooms of the underclassmen in order to haze them. Burton's reaction was to leave his door unlocked and to place a poker by his bed, just daring anyone to try and humiliate him. By the way, you can look on our website and see Burton and his beloved mustache. It is a glorious thing. So Oxford was not the greatest place for Richard Burton. He disliked England to begin with and held a general distaste, distrust, and scorn for others. He hated the food, not to mention the beer. Yet he had supreme confidence in himself. He took up boxing and truly fell in love with fencing, which he got really good at. And then there were the languages. It was clearly what he loved. He was teaching himself Arabic, but struggled until it was pointed out that he was doing everything backwards, as Arabic is written and read right to left, not left to right. He was appalled that Oxford didn't teach the language, considering how many people in the empire spoke it. 
He even began to learn Romani, the language of the gypsies. He would visit a gypsy camp in the nearby woods and try to pick up their language and dally with the girls, the latter probably his main goal. By the way, many people claim that Burton had the look of a gypsy due to his dark hair and complexion. Anyhow, even in his language, Burton frustrated his teachers. He spoke Latin like an Italian, not an Englishman, and refused to compromise on that point. In truth, Burton hated school. After his first term, he wanted to go join the army as the first Anglo-Afghan war was now being fought. He thought it would be a grand adventure. But his parents made him stick to his schooling. Once back at Oxford, Burton did all he could to poke school administrators and local leaders. He drew caricatures of them, made up crude lyrics about them, pulled childish pranks, and refused to attend church services even when ordered. His fellow classmates loved it all. But things would come to a head when the students were banned from attending a local horse race. Burton, being Burton, would go anyways, along with a few other students. They were caught, but instead of being contrite and apologetic, Burton doubled down on his actions. He challenged the school administrators, arguing like a practice lawyer. He said the rules were unfair and the students were being treated like children, not as the adults that they were, that sort of thing. Byron Farwell, who wrote a biography on Burton, said that when he had finished his defense with a grand speech, he didn't even give the school administrators a chance to respond. Instead, he, quote, made a courtly Austrian bow from the waist and left the room, end quote. Very Burton-like, willing to go out in a blaze of glory rather than to grovel before those he did not respect. Anyhow, that would be it for the young man at Oxford. He was expelled. And thus his father relented on his, and his brother's, desire to join the army. Edward would join the regular British army as a surgeon. As for Richard, he would have to settle for a commission, which cost the family 500 pounds, in the army of the Honorable East India Company. He would be an officer in the Bombay Native Infantry. By the way, a commission in the East India Company was not as prestigious as one with the regular army. Now is a good time to talk about the East India Company, often just called the Company. The East India Company was, literally, a huge company. It had been founded in 1600 to conduct trade in the Far East. Well, over the past two and a half centuries, it had morphed into this massive entity that was so big, it had its own armies and came to control India and lands all over the region. And it even started its own wars, such as the Opium Wars in China. That conflict began when the company wanted to import opium into China. The Chinese, however, had banned opium imports because they saw how devastating the drug was on the population. But for British merchants, there was big money to be made in opium, and thus a war was conducted to force open the Chinese markets. If that sounds like the actions of a drug cartel, you're not far off. It's really weird when you think about it. A company so big it controlled nations, made foreign policy decisions, and had hundreds of thousands of troops under its command. But that was the world that Burton was entering. The company, by the way, primarily used native troops, commanded by British officers, and this would be Burton's role. In January of 1842, the British would suffer a devastating defeat in Afghanistan, losing more than 16,000 men and civilians on their retreat from Kabul. The defeat had shocked Britain, and there were calls for vengeance. And that is what Burton saw in his future, and he was excited about the possibilities. Travel to an exotic land, fighting battles, all that stuff. So, upon signing up with the company, Burton would immediately take up studying Hindustani, which included Hindi and Urdu. He would sail to India on June 18, 1842. The voyage would take four months, and the 21-year-old Burton would pass the time studying military manuals and Hindustani books and dictionaries. Plus, he would box and fence with his fellow officers. Burton kept his big mustache, but shaved his head, thinking it would be cooler that way. He would arrive in India to a major disappointment. 
the war in Afghanistan was over. The British had marched back into Afghanistan, defeated the native armies, and installed their preferred ruler on the throne. Burton and his fellow officers were bitterly disappointed to have missed the action. So instead of heading off to the battlefield, Burton was sent to Bombay, and in typical fashion, he would have little good to say about the place. It was dirty and hot, and the lodgings were substandard. On the positive side, he would be able to dive into learning the local customs and languages. One thing Burton understood was that there was no better teacher of a language than a native speaker. In Bombay, he would find locals to teach him. In addition to Hindustani, he took up Gujarati and Persian. Burton had a remarkable ear and mind for languages, and he developed his own system to train him how to learn things. It wasn't just about speaking and understanding the language, it was about speaking it like a native. By the way, he said the first thing he did when studying a language was to learn the swear words. After Bombay, Burton's unit would head north about 250 miles to Baroda. As with school, Burton did not fit well into regimental life. He did not find a lot to like about his fellow officers, and his perceived arrogance and obsession with local customs made him an odd fit. He would thus dive into his growing obsession with Eastern culture. He learned how to be a snake charmer, although he had an aversion to snakes, and he learned how to ride Indian style and promptly won the regimental horse race. And he kept working on languages, which included a deeper dive into Arabic. One very European thing that he did was acquire a native mistress. This was common, as there were so few English women in India. In addition to being a sexual partner, the woman would keep house, cook, and command any other staff. Burton would also learn from her to speak the local language and about local customs. Burton also took to learning different religions, diving into Sikhism, Buddhism, and Islam. In April of 1843, Burton would pass his Hindustani exam and go to work as an interpreter for his regiment. Five months later, he would pass the exam for Gujarati. He always took first place in these exams. All of this would allow Burton to immerse himself in the life of the locals. He had dark hair and a dark complexion, and with his mastery of the language, he could disguise himself as a local. This ability would offer some fascinating opportunities for his superiors. And that leads us to a phase of Burton's life that is somewhat murky and that is his role as a spy. For years, Burton would have the opportunity to wander in the guise of a local. He never said he was spying, but many believed that he was out and about on the orders of the East India Company. By the way, this era was the middle of what is called the Great Game, the political and diplomatic sparring between Britain and Russia over Afghanistan and the neighboring territories. Russia wanted to expand its influence to the south and gain access to the ports on the Black Sea and even the Indian Ocean and the fabled markets of the Far East. The British feared a Russian invasion of the area, even an attempt to take India. The great game was not necessarily Russia fighting Britain, but each side seeking to influence and control the various nations and kingdoms of the region. No matter, the British Empire valued intelligence, and what better way to get it than to have a British officer traipsing around the region in disguise. Now, even if Burton never says he was a spy, he certainly did things a spy might do, such as measure distances between places in a way that was not obvious to those around him. He did this by counting the steps of camels and translating that into distance. No matter, he would have been able to observe troop movements, their number and makeup, and get details on fortifications. And then there was gossip. He quickly learned that the gossip in the street was often the best way to figure out how the winds were blowing in a city or town. To do all of this, Burton created different personas. He would be a dervish, a sort of holy man dedicated to poverty. A dervish often used physical exertion and ceremony as a way to reach God and Burton's growing knowledge of Islam allowed him to go toe-to-toe with just about anyone in religious debate. He would even gain the title of Hafiz, meaning someone who had memorized the Quran. 
but the most common persona he used was that of a half-Arab, half-Persian merchant named Mirza Abdullah. With his dark hair, now long, and great mustache and beard, he looked the part. He would travel from place to place, set up shop, and sell spices, tobaccos, oils, and medicines. He would then use his considerable charms to find out all the secrets of the town. It was often the wives and mistresses of the local lords who had the most information, and they liked to talk to the handsome and charming storekeeper. By the way, it was on one of these excursions, to who knows where, that Burton is said to have fallen madly in love with the daughter of a Persian noble. The two would exchange gifts and letters, but before he could carry her away, she became ill and died. We never find out her name. Now, in these years, Burton wasn't just wandering around in disguise as a native. He would go back to his regiment and have assignments. He took part in some surveying in the Sindh, which is southern Pakistan. Here he learned how to use surveying tools. Another assignment had him at the court of a Persian prince who had fled to Pakistan and then India. Burton worked to persuade the man to wage war on the Shah in Persia, who the British felt was too friendly with the Russians. And we can't forget about languages. Burton kept taking and passing his exams for local languages, eventually knowing six fluently, a remarkable feat. During all of this, I can't stress how much Burton kept learning about the local people, their cultures, and religions. It's almost a mania with him, and it will become a part of his personality. One area he spent a lot of time on was sexuality. He was very interested in the sexual practices of different peoples. As this was the Victorian era, his matter-of-fact descriptions would shock many readers. And for some, Burton's obsession with sex will cloud all other aspects of his life. But for Burton, his interest in sex was just another facet of his immense curiosity. While in India, he would read different books that dealt with sexuality, and he began to contemplate translating some of those texts into English. But that will be for later in life. Another big topic of interest to Burton was, and will always be, religion. It is something that he will never stop exploring. He will devour the teachings of religion, and not just learn about it in a scholarly sense, but to practice it and be accepted into its fold. He would master the tenets of Hinduism and Sikhism, but the religion that truly captured his imagination was Islam, in particular Sufism, the most mystical form of Islam. Burton had always been fascinated by mysticism, and in Sufism he found beauty in its teachings and poetry. As I noted earlier, he would gain the title of Hafiz, someone who has memorized the Quran. And let's be clear, Burton became a Muslim at this time. He lived his life according to the religion, doing prayers and rituals and so forth. And he would even have himself circumcised according to Islamic tradition. It wasn't just a scholarly immersion, but much more. Now, despite his interest in Islam, I want to note that Burton never considered himself anything but an Englishman. He had no loyalty to the people who called Islam their religion. However, his religious and cultural immersions would cause issues with some of his fellow officers. Some saw him as going native, while others did not trust Burton because of his association with the locals and Islam. And Burton's willingness to criticize and scorn almost everyone made him few friends. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. In 1845, Burton would find himself stationed in Karachi, Pakistan. Disguised as a local merchant, he would open three shops in the city, selling tobacco and cloth. Here he picked up local gossip and news for the higher-ups. And I want to stress something else about Burton. He wrote down everything, and I mean everything. He was obsessive about learning and writing everything down. And he wasn't just collecting information on troop movements or who was making a power play in the local palace. He was gathering information about the vices and virtues of the locals, their sexual practices, their medicines, their weapons, their rights, their customs, and anything he could find out. He wrote it all down. It is a habit he will keep for the rest of his life. It means Burton will be a wealth of information, but it also makes him hard to sift through at times. Some of his books will be a flood of data and information and observations with no real organizations. It's kind of maddening, but fascinating as well. Now, I'm going to recount an incident from 1845 that will come back to haunt Burton. General Charles Napier, the commander of the British forces in the region, would ask Burton to go on a mission for him. There were reports that some brothels in Karachi were catering to homosexuals. Napier wanted to know if it was true and if his men were going to these places. Well, Burton would do as told and find out about three such establishments. He would report back to Napier about them. His report included details, such as services offered, prices, and so forth. It was very straightforward, without judgment. Well, this report would, eventually, reach others within the East India Company, men who weren't fans of Burton, and they would use it as a way to smear Burton's reputation. They said it was pornographic and questioned how he learned all the details of the report, a way to hint that he had partook in the services of the brothels. Frankly, it was ridiculous. Burton had done as ordered, but it will, as I said, come back to haunt him. So I want to jump forward to the outbreak of the First Anglo-Sikh War in December of 1845. From the title, you can imagine that this is a war between the Sikh Empire and the East India Company. Well, this was going to finally be Burton's chance to get involved in a real war. So off he would go to the north of India. But fate would intervene in the form of cholera. Burton would get the potentially deadly disease in July of 1846. It was so bad he was given a two-year medical leave to recover. Burton would be sent to the Nilgiri Mountains, a 7,000-foot, or 2,135-meter, plateau in the south of India, to recover. A sidetrack here. Burton would stop at the port of Goa on the western coast of India on his way to the Nilgiri Mountains. This excited Burton, as the Portuguese poet, Luiz de Camões, whom Burton greatly admired, had spent time in the city hundreds of years earlier. Burton would go on to translate several Camões' works into English later in his life. Anyhow, while in Goa, Burton would, and I'm not making this up, take an interest in a young nun at a convent. It's as if the guy sees something he knows he shouldn't have, yet he can't help himself. Anyhow, he would break into the convent one night, intent on running off with the object of his affections. Unfortunately, he would go to the incorrect room and try to carry off the wrong nun. Whoops. Burton would be on the next both south after that fiasco. His recuperation in the Nilgiri Highlands did not go well. While cooler, it was extremely damp. It led to Burton developing a serious eye infection. Also, he found it relentlessly boring. Still, Burton managed to continue with his language studies. He would pass his Persian exam, first in his class, again, and get a 1,000 rupee bonus for his work. 
Also, he developed an interest in gold mining in the region. Nothing would ever come of it, but gold would be a lifelong obsession with Burton. Burton would eventually get so bored, he would convince the staff to let him rejoin his regiment. This despite his eye problems, something that wouldn't clear up for nearly two years. Anyhow, he would end up joining a surveying team in the Sindh, in southern Pakistan, although his eye issues hampered his effectiveness. And then in 1848, the Second Sikh War would break out. Burton, fully qualified in six languages, including that of the Sikhs, would apply for a job as an interpreter. However, he would lose out to another applicant who knew only one language, Hindustani. Why did this happen? Well, remember those reports that he wrote about the brothels in Karachi? Well, they had been read by some in the company, and there were those who thought it was a disgrace that an English officer would write such a thing. Which, as I said, was ridiculous. Burton was only doing his duty, and it should not have been his fault if others couldn't handle his unflinching honesty. He didn't have the time or stomach to couch the truth in flowery language. And it didn't help that Burton, in his other reports, had not held back his criticism of the company and the British government. That said, I want to stress that Burton wasn't critical of British imperialism. He was critical of how stupid and counterproductive the higher-ups were at running things. And while many people agreed and appreciated Burton's honest opinions, many did not. And thus, when his name came up for a crucial job, it was easy to slap him down for what many perceived as insubordination. And so here was Burton, 28 years old, and his career stalled. He was still weak from cholera, and his eye was bothersome. His drinking increased, as well as his opium use. Frustrated, he would go back on sick leave and elect to return to England to recuperate and contemplate his future. Back in England, Burton toyed with the idea of returning to Oxford, but quickly dismissed the idea. Instead, he would write a number of books about his time in India. This included Goa in the Blue Mountains, or Six Months on Sick Leave, about his time recuperating in the southwest of India. Plus there was Sindh in the races that inhabit the Valley of the Indus, and Falconry in the Valley of the Indus. He would even write a book titled A Complete System of Bayonet Exercises, because why not? Burton had written the manual because the British, unlike virtually every major army in the world, did not have any official training in the use of the bayonet. The only use seems to have been when used in an orderly charge. The book would actually cause Burton to receive an official reprimand from his superiors because pointing out how stupid your superiors are is far worse than not training your soldiers properly. Funny side note here. A few years later, in the Crimean War, the British Army would adopt Burton's manual with a few tweaks. The government would pay Burton one shilling for his work, which is like pennies. By doing this, they could say they paid him for his copyrighted material. The best part was that Burton, just to prove a point, went down to the war office in London and filled out all the paperwork to get his stupid shilling. Thank you very much. He then gave the shilling to the first beggar who approached him. Now, none of Burton's books really made much money, if any. His books, while packed with information, some of it brilliant, lacked a narrative cohesion to them. They jumped around from subject to subject and just suffered from a lack of editing. No matter, even if only minor successes, they helped raise Burton's profile. Now, all that said, Burton came back to England and then went on to France, where he would spend much of the next few years. His family would suffer a tragedy at this time when Edward, Richard's brother, a surgeon in India, was attacked and beaten by some natives. He would suffer a traumatic brain injury and spend the rest of his life in a sanitarium in England in a near-vegetative state. Sources say that he never spoke again after the attack. So, back in Europe, Richard Burton's reputation as a scoundrel and provocateur would follow him wherever he went. And he leaned into the ruffian dick persona, drinking and flirting with women whenever he got the chance. When one lady saw Burton's interest in her daughter, she sent for him, saying, quote, I sent for you, Captain Burton, because I think it is my duty to ask what your intentions are with regard to my daughter. End quote. 
Burton replied, quote, Alas, madam, I regret to say, strictly dishonorable. End quote. Ruffian Dick, indeed. Now, all of that said, Burton was serious about meeting someone and getting married. But he had little money, was on half pay, and had few prospects. Good looks and a lot of charm and confidence didn't pay the bills. That meant that many families kept him away from their daughters. And that takes us to 1850, when Burton would meet 19-year-old Isabel Rundell, the daughter of a fiercely proud Catholic family. They had relocated to France to escape religious persecution in England. Isabel was immediately smitten with Burton, who was 10 years her senior. The two would flirt, but nothing would happen between them, yet. But I mention Isabel because she will be very important to our story later on. So, for a couple of years, Burton would write and publish his books, and generally try and figure out his lot in life. As we noted, he liked to drink and carouse, and he continued to work on his fencing skills. Regarding fencing, he would go on to invent his own moves, and he was described as brilliant. One time he had a contest with a French sergeant, who happened to be a celebrated fencer. Burton disarmed the man in all seven bouts, and the Frenchman would later say that the ferocity of Burton's move nearly dislocated his wrist. This takes us to 1852. Burton was bored. The army was a dead end, and he wanted to do something special, something big. And thus he would go to the Royal Geographical Society and make them an offer. He would travel, in disguise, to Arabia and visit the cities of Medina and Mecca, the holiest cities of Islam. Only a handful of men had ever visited them. He would then travel across the Arabian Peninsula, the first European to ever do so. It was an enticing offer. Arabia was essentially a big blank on the map to the Western world. And what better person to go there than the man who had, time and time again, proven himself to be able to pass as a local. He knew the language, the customs, and the religion. Such a journey would interest the British government as well, as the empire was eyeing up the Middle East. Knowing more specifics about Arabia would be a great coup. Burton's plan was to travel to Egypt, then to Suez, down the Red Sea, then on to Medina and Mecca, and then continuing to Muscat, a port all the way on the opposite corner of the peninsula, on the Gulf of Oman and the Indian Ocean. This would be an epic journey upwards of 2,000 miles, or 3,200 kilometers. And it would be wildly dangerous. It wasn't as if there was one entity that Burton would have to negotiate with to gain access to the region. This would be dozens of different tribes and nationalities with varying religious and cultural backgrounds. And Burton would have to do it all in disguise. He could afford no mistakes. Not one. He would have to be a Muslim every minute of every hour of every day. One slip could give him away. And if he was discovered, he would certainly be executed. No infidel was allowed in the holy cities of Medina or Mecca under the penalty of death. Only about a dozen Europeans had ever been to Mecca, the most famous being John Ludwig Burkhardt in 1814-15. Burton's plan was audacious, and the Royal Geographical Society gave it the thumbs up. However, Burton was still an officer in the East India Company, which would have to give him leave in order to undertake the journey. And here, Burton's reputation would cripple him. The chairman of the company, James Hogg, was not a fan of Burton and turned down his request for a two-year leave. He said it was too dangerous. Instead, he would give Burton a year's leave, saying it was best to study Arabic, quote, in the lands where the language is best learned, end quote. With only a year available to him, Burton would have to change his plans. Instead of crossing the peninsula, he would just go to Medina and Mecca and then come back. At least that was the official word. Deep down, Burton hoped the opportunity to cross Arabia would present itself. If that happened, he would take it, leave or no leave. Now, one quick note. Burton was doing all this under the aegis of the Royal Geographical Society and Great Britain. But make no mistake, his desire was to do a hajj, a pilgrimage to Mecca. 
Remember, he considered himself a Muslim, and all Muslims had to, at least once in their life, make a pilgrimage to Mecca. So while this expedition had official trappings, for Burton, it was very personal. And so this is where I will leave things for today. Next time, we will travel with Richard Francis Burton as he makes an audacious trek into the heart of Arabia, a journey that would unlock the secrets to a mysterious land and make him famous. I want to wrap up with a quick thank you to all our supporters. I appreciate all you do to help the show. A big thank you to our patrons, who are so important to making all of this happen. This includes Connor, Elizabeth, Dave, Eileen, Donnell, Adam, Catherine, Collier, Craig, Dave, Eamon, Gregory, Griffin, John, Paul, Philip, Ralph, Roger, Rudy, and so many others. Thank you. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the show, check out how to do that on our website, explorerspodcast.com. You can also make a donation via PayPal. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed our first episode in our series on Richard Francis Burton. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find more great independent podcasts such as Infamous America, Monster Talk, and many others.